0: Good morning, church family. Pray that you are all well, as it is wonderful to see all of you here this morning on the Lord's Day, ready and prepared to venture on in our study of the Gospel of Mark, as today we will once again be in Mark chapter 8, looking specifically this morning at verses 31 through 33, or when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ foretells of his death and resurrection, which, believe it or not, really does begin the second half of the Gospel of Mark. However, before we get to that this morning, church, the context here is really, really important. And thus, because of that, I just want to make sure that we all keep in mind here how the first half of the Gospel of Mark wrapped up. Whereas in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, a blind man was brought to Jesus Christ in Bethsaida. And after Jesus Christ led this aforementioned blind man by the hand out of the village in Bethsaida, he then, verse 23, spits onto this blind man's eyes and places his hands onto him. However, unlike the other healings that have taken place thus far in the Gospel of Mark, the healing of the blind man's sight, for it did not take place instantly or completely, but instead it happened gradually, and that after Jesus Christ spit on this blind man's eyes and placed his hands onto him and asked him, do you see anything? The blind man then replied back to Jesus Christ in verse 24 by saying to him, I see people, but that they look like trees walking. To which Jesus Christ then proceeded to put his hands back onto this man's eyes a second time here, church, and this time the man's sight was restored and he was now able to see clearly. And this gradual healing of the blind man here, as we have touched on over the past two weeks, it actually serves as a parable of sorts or as an object lesson of sorts, displaying how Jesus' own disciples would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, in order to display how Jesus' own disciples would go from a non-understanding of Jesus Christ to a misunderstanding of Jesus Christ to that of a complete understanding of Jesus Christ. And thus, with all that in mind, Jesus and his disciples then, they head out of Bethsaida and journey northward toward a place called Caesarea Philippi. And while on the way, Jesus Christ, he then asked his disciples in verse 29, For who do you say that I am? In essence, asking them point blank, For who do you, my most trusted friends, in light of all that you have seen me do up until this point in my ministry, see, think, and believe that I, Jesus, truly am? To which the apostle Peter, he replies back to Jesus By saying to him in verse 29 that you are the Christ, or as Matthew puts it in his gospel, that you, Jesus, are the Christ and the Son of the living God, which really is the climax here, church, in the first half of the gospel of Mark, and that Jesus' own disciples now, after seeing all of his miracles and witnessing all of his healings and after hearing all of his teaching, that they now finally see who this man named Jesus truly is, that being the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of the living God, and yet still, similar to the blind man here, church, although Jesus' disciples now do indeed have some understanding as to who exactly this man named Jesus truly is, they still at this time do not see him clearly, and that they still do not understand what exactly it means for Jesus to be the Christ, which as we will see here today, and really throughout the rest of this gospel, Jesus then will begin teaching and displaying to his disciples what it means for him to be the Christ, and what ultimately then he, Jesus Christ, came into this world to do. Which takes us now to our thesis statement this morning, church, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of the Living God, came into this world to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and on the third day be raised from the dead in order to save sinners from their sins. Again, our thesis statement this morning, church, is this Jesus Christ, the Son of the Living God, came into this world to suffer to be rejected, to be killed, and on the third day be raised from the dead in order to save sinners from their sins. Therefore, at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up this morning to Mark chapter 8, as we will be looking specifically this morning at verses 31 through 33. And if you are joining us today and do not have or do not own a Bible, then please feel free to grab and even to keep one of our church Bibles, which are all located in the chairs in front of you this morning, and to also then open that brand new Bible of yours up at this time to page 844, and to join us as we, as a church family, hear the Word of God together this morning. For again, we are in Mark chapter 8 this morning, church, looking specifically at verses 31 through 33, where John Mark the author of the Gospel of Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, how good it is to look out from this pulpit and to see all these wonderful faces here today, worshiping the Lord and Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we can do it openly and freely in this country. Lord, that we can come together and encourage each other, sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Give of our offerings, pray to the God of the universe, sit under the teaching of his perfect and infallible word. For we are no longer enemies of the Most High God, but we are children seated at his table. Let this never be lost on any of us here this morning, and that is only possible because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ our substitute, the sacrifice who died on our behalf, the one who knew no sin, who became sin so that through him we could become the righteousness of God. Lord, let our eyes be open this morning to how perfect, how wonderful, how life-giving this substitute, Jesus Christ, is for us. Father, open our eyes, our ears, and soften our hearts this morning to receive Not only this wonderful word, but the truth that is so apparent in our text this morning that is the gospel that saves sinners from their sins. Father, I pray that you help me as well this morning, that I, Father, rely completely on you, on your spirit to give these dear people exactly what they need, less of me and all of you. Father, do this wonderful work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, the Messiahship of Jesus Christ was not marked by his political or by his military power, but instead by his willingness to be the suffering servant for many. The Messiahship of Jesus Christ was not marked by his political or by his military power, but instead by his willingness to be the suffering servant for many. Verse 31, which reads, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So again, church, we are entering today the second half of the Gospel of Mark. Whereas previously, in the first half of the Gospel of Mark, the author, John Mark, had focused predominantly on displaying who this man named Jesus truly was, which as we saw last week and as the Apostle Peter properly confessed was the Christ, or as Matthew chapter 16 puts it, the Christ and the Son of the living God. Whereas now the overall focus of the second half of the Gospel of Mark will shift to displaying what this man named Jesus Christ ultimately came into this world to do, particularly through the lens of Jesus Christ as this suffering servant. Which again, as I mentioned last week, church, did not align at all with the expectations that the majority of the Jewish people had for their anticipated Messiah at this time. Those expectations being, broadly, that the Messiah would rise up and overthrow that of Israel's physical enemies, set them free here on earth from bondage and oppression, and ultimately then set up a kingdom via the means of military power and domination, which, as we will see here today, was absolutely not why Jesus Christ came into this world, nor how Jesus Christ would ultimately establish his kingdom. And thus because of that disconnect, Jesus Christ, then, he begins to teach his disciples here what he came into this world to do. And he begins to do so by initially referring to himself, as we see in verse 31, "Not as the Messiah, but instead as the Son of Man." Which does not mean, church, that he, Jesus Christ, did not think that he was the Messiah or did not know that he was the Messiah, or did not believe that he was the Messiah. But instead, as Mark Strauss points out, Jesus Christ simply uses the term the Son of Man here instead of the Messiah, likely because the Son of Man did not convey with it all the political and military connotations that the term the Messiah did, which could have, been be- which could have become detrimental to Jesus' mini- mission. Nevertheless, the term, the Son of Man... It's a term, church, that is just dripping with imagery and meaning. And I say that because not only does it portray someone as being truly human or truly man, as Psalm chapter 8 uses it, but it also portrays the one from heaven who dominion and glory and a kingdom has been given to, as Daniel chapter 7 uses it. And thus this son of man designation by Jesus Christ here, it encounters. Encapsulates church, as numerous scholars have pointed out, not only the true humanity of Jesus Christ here, but also the true divine messiahship of Jesus Christ here as well. Nevertheless, Jesus Christ, he still then goes on to tell his disciples here in verse 31 that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Not bring about suffering to Israel's physical enemies not fight against and destroy that of Israel's physical enemies, not pick up a sword and lead the people of Israel to victory against their physical enemies, but that he instead, verse 31, must suffer many things. Suffer as in to be forsaken and mocked, despised and scorned, Psalm 22, to be disgraced and humiliated, spit on and struck, Isaiah chapter 50, to be pierced and crushed, chastised and wounded, oppressed, and afflicted, and to be esteemed? Absolutely not, Isaiah chapter 53. But instead, verse 31, to be rejected by the elders, by the chief priest, and even by that of the scribes. In essence, by the entire Jewish high court, or otherwise known as the Sanhedrin, who are made up, church, as we see in verse 31, by the elders who were the lay members of this court, who were not priests, by the chief priests, who were the male members of the priestly families, including that of the high priest Caiaphas, and by that of the scribes, who were the experts of the Mosaic law and who gave counsel to that of the Sanhedrin, In essence, the bigwig religious and political leaders of the day church from Jerusalem were going to reject that of Jesus Christ, which would then, as we see in verse 31, lead to Jesus Christ being killed, and after three days rising again, which again, church, must have been just unfathomable and unimaginable, and inconceivable, and downright impossible for Jesus' disciples here to comprehend, since it ran completely counter to just about everything that they had thought and believed that the Messiah would ultimately do. And yet Jesus Christ, he makes it crystal clear here, church, that the suffering, and that the rejection, and that the death, and that the resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that it all was necessary, and that it all absolutely had to take place. Derek Burgess, he shared church, that shortly after the terrible crash of Air Florida's Flight 90 in Washington, D.C., in January of 1982, that Time magazine had printed an essay called, The Man in the Water, about a man who initially survived the crash and who hung on to the tail section of the plane while it rested in the Potomac River. And every time a rescue helicopter lowered a lifeline down to the surviving passengers, this man, he passed that lifeline on to someone else. However, when the helicopter had rescued all the other survivors and finally came back for him, it was too late, for by that time he had gone down into the icy waters of the Potomac, And he had to have known, as he passed those numerous lifelines on to others, especially that last one, that he was giving up his chance for life. Nevertheless, he sacrificed his life and died an icy death in that river so that others could live. Similarly, Church Jesus Christ, God's Son, he gave up his life on a cross so that you and I did not have to perish, but instead could have life life that is indescribable, life that never ends, life that is everlasting. And thus the suffering of Jesus Christ here, church, and the rejection of of Jesus Christ here, and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ here, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ here, it all had to take place, church, because that was how God planned to reconcile sinful man back to himself, meaning that none of this church was God's backup plan, or fallback plan, contingency plan, secondary plan, oh no, what do I do now, people? sin type of plan, but that instead it was always the will of our Lord, to crush his son, to put him to grief, and to make him the sacrifice on our behalf in order to redeem us from the law, cleanse us of our sin, defeat the works of the devil, save us from his most holy wrath, and to display his love to the world. And thus, although it may be a hard truth for us to conceive, church, that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, had to suffer, be rejected, killed, and after three days rise again, church, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, Hebrews chapter 9. And thus, in order for the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands to be canceled, and in order for us to become the righteousness of God and receive the gift of eternal life, and in order for redeeming and cleansing and atoning blood to be sprinkled on all the nations of the earth, and for salvation to be brought to people who groups from every tongue, every tribe and every nation. It wasn't a moral example church that was needed, nor was it a victim church that was needed, nor even was it a payment to Satan church that was needed, but instead it was a substitute church that was needed, a substitute named Jesus Christ to willingly make a full and perfect payment for the sins of many on our behalf, something that we as sinners could never Ever do, which is why Jesus Christ made clear here, church that he must suffer, be rejected, killed, and after three days rise again, since it is only through the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we as the children of God can be forgiven of our sins, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and reconciled back to our God forever, which was always church, even from the very beginning of time, how our God wanted to redeem, that of his chosen people. Which brings us to point number two. Christian, set your mind on the things of God and not on the things of man. Christian, set your mind on the things of God and not on the things of man. Verses 32 and 33, which reads, And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So following Jesus Christ, teaching his disciples about his role, about his mission, and ultimately about his destiny as the Messiah, the Apostle Peter then, after hearing Jesus Christ speak so plainly that he must suffer and be rejected and killed, and after three days rise again, he then takes Jesus Christ aside, and as we see in verse 32, he then begins to rebuke him. A.k.a. to reprimand him, to admonish him, to oppose him, and to not accept the teachings of him by saying to him, as we see in Matthew chapter 16, far be it from you, Lord, for this shall never happen to you. Because in the mind of Simon Peter here, the triumphant Messiah was to come to power politically, was to conquer and destroy foreign enemies militarily, was to lead the people of Israel nationally, not suffer and die here on earth physically. To which Jesus Christ, he then turns... And in seeing his disciples, rebukes Peter, saying to him in verse 33, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now Jesus Christ, dear church, for he isn't saying that Peter now is demonic or satanic or possessed by that of a demon, but instead what he's getting at here, church, is he's telling P- Peter to get out of my way, to quit tempting me and stop acting like a mouthpiece for that of the evil one. Because for Peter here, church, to hear what must happen to Jesus Christ as the Messiah and to then rebuke that plan and oppose that Plan, not accept that plan, and in doing so, discourage Jesus Christ from ultimately fulfilling that plan was just like what Satan himself tried to do to Jesus all the way back in Mark chapter 1 or as we saw in Matthew chapter 4. Whereas Satan tried to tempt Jesus Christ and to convince Jesus Christ that he did not need to go to the cross in order to be given all the kingdoms of the world, but that he instead just needed needed to fall down and worship Satan, and thus, as Daniel Aiken puts it, just like Satan had previously done, so too does Peter here try to offer Jesus Christ the crown without the cross. Therefore, Jesus Christ, then, he makes clear to the apostle Peter here, as we see in verse 33, that he, Peter, was not setting his mind on the things of God or seeing the Messiah here, church, from God's eternal perspective, but that he was instead setting his mind on the things of men and thus only seeing the Messiah here, church, from his own worldly or nearsighted perspective, which, make no mistake about it, church, is a dangerous, dangerous place for anyone to be in, whereas they dogmatically set their minds not on the ways of God, nor on the will of God, but instead on the concerns and on the purposes of man. And thus, as we begin to close this morning, church, I want to do so by beginning with the non-Christian who was here first. The non-Christian who might be sitting there this morning, wondering and maybe even pondering at this time, for why on earth should I believe then and follow then and trust then in this man named Jesus? Since when he did come into this world, he had to suffer, be rejected, killed, and after three days raised from the dead. And the answer to that question, non-Christian... It's because that was how our Sovereign and all-powerful and all-knowing and perfect God decided to redeem this world by sending his only son, non-Christian, Jesus Christ, into this world as truly God and as truly man to live and to dwell amongst us and to save us from our sin by initially living for us, non-Christian, the life that we could never live and that the law of God that we as sinners break over and And over again, each and every day, Jesus Christ, when he came into this world, he never broke that law once, but instead lived a holy and righteous and sinless life here on earth, and thus kept the law of God in its entirety, non-Christian, perfectly and completely and without any offense, all for the very children of God. However, Jesus Christ, he didn't jest come into this world in order to live the life for sinners that they could not live. But he also, non-Christian, came into this world in order to pay the penalty for sin that we as sinners could not pay. And he did that, non-Christian, by giving up his life for the sins of many by being nailed to and pierced and crushed and crucified on a cross at Calvary in our place and as our very substitute even though he himself never sinned. And in doing so, non-Christian, appeased the wrath of a holy God toward his sinful children. And thus because of that, three days later, than non-Christian, in Jesus Christ. He didn't remain dead or buried in some grave, but instead three days later, this sinless son of God, Jesus Christ, he rose from the grave and in doing so displayed to the world that he had indeed defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all and that he now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day non-Christian that you turn from your sin. Let today be The day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin, and can clothe you then in His righteousness, in His perfect life, and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non Christian, that you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And today will be the day. I promise you that you will be forgiven of your sin and given the gift, non-Christian, of eternal life. And to the Christian who is here today, brother Christian, sister Christian, for as we close this morning, I'd like to do so in light of verse 33, or again where we saw Jesus Christ say to Peter, Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus Christ, he rebuked Peter so firmly here, church, because, as J.C. Ryle put it, Peter here, he actually began to think that he knew what was right and what was fitting for Jesus better than Jesus Christ actually did. To the point that he actually then began to tell Jesus about a more excellent way than that of his own. Which is a pretty bold move from Peter here, is it not? Whereas the apostle Peter, who just heard the words of Jesus Christ, and who also here clearly comprehends what Jesus Christ said the Messiah would ultimately have to endure in essence, replies back to Jesus Christ by saying to him, Look, Jesus, I hear you, and I get what you're saying. However, what you are communicating here about the Messiah, for it just does not jive with my expectations of the Messiah, and thus I'm going to rebuke you here, Jesus, since I believe that I've got a better plan for you here, Jesus. And as cringeworthy as that is to think about church, for how often do we as Christians do the exact same thing to Jesus Christ? Whereas we have been told by Jesus Christ that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And yet we say to Jesus, you know, I hear you, but I think I've got a better way of doing things, so I'm just going to lust after this woman on my computer for just a little bit, also that I don't end up really cheating on my wife. Or where we have been told by Jesus Christ to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And yet we say to Jesus, you know, I hear you. But again, I think I've got a better way of doing things. Because for me to just gossip just a little bit about my enemies at work, it will help me blow off some steam. And in the long run, I think I'll be much better off. Or where we have been told by Jesus Christ that we are not to be anxious about what we are to eat or what we are to wear. And yet we say to Jesus, you know, I hear you, but yet again, I still think I've got a far better plan. So I'm just going to lie and to cheat and to steal in order to make just a bit more money, also that I can pay my bills, get everything in line, and then afterward, I'll get back to doing it your way. And thus lovingly, let me remind you all this morning, church, that we have not been called to alter the ways of our God nor to amend the words of our God, nor even to project our 21st century purposes onto the will of God. But instead, as the very children of God, we have been called quite simply to just submit to the will of God, and most certainly not that of our own. For as Walter Knight once shared, for there once was an old Scottish woman who went from home to home across the countryside, selling threads, buttons, and shoestrings. However, whenever she would come to an unmarked crossroad, she would toss a stick up into the air and then go into the direction that the stick pointed when it landed. Nevertheless, one day, when she was seen tossing the stick up into the air multiple times, someone asked her, "'For why are you tossing that stick up into the air more than once?' Because, replied the woman, it keeps pointing to the road that I do not want to follow. Which is the way of many people in the world today, church, is it not? For they know the way of God, but they refuse to follow it, since it is not the way that they want to go or the path that they ultimately want to take. For you see, brother Christian, sister Christian, for us to seek to project our will onto God, or our plans onto God, or our ways, our words, our purposes, and our desires onto God so that we can conform our God into our image and into our own likeness. For that is not to worship God, but instead to worship the idol of the self. And thus, when we are tempted, church, to reject the ways of our God or oppose the words of our God or to not accept the perfect will of our God for our very lives simply because they are not jiving 100% with our purposes or with our own desires at this time, let us be quick to remember then, Christian, that our God, that his ways are perfect, that his words are true, that his testimony is trustworthy, and that his will is always good. And thus, because of that, as the late Effie Marsh so famously put it, let our lives then forever be, Christian, set on the will of God. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body never be tempted to willingly oppose the will of God simply because his will, his ways, and his word does not jive with that of our own. But instead, Father, let us as your children be willing in all that we do to be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And furthermore, let us not then, Father, get swept up by every whimsical doctrine of man and in doing so try to tell you how to best run our lives, but instead in all that we do, Father, help us to be willing to die to self, to put our own worldly de- worldly desires to rest, and to set our minds on you and only you, since your ways are higher than our ways, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and your plans and your will for us, God, are infinitely greater than anything that we could ever come up with or think. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you have given us as a God who does not lie, as a God who cannot lie, your perfect word, your perfect testimony, and the only means of salvation, and the word himself, Jesus Christ. And yet, how quick are we, Lord, to not keep your commandments? To say my way, not Your way, my will be done, not your will, God. Father, if those thoughts are rushing through our mind this morning, Lord, we come to you and we repent. Father, we know if we confess our sins that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we know that it is true because your Son and his work on the cross His resurrection from the grave and life everlasting by grace through through faith in Jesus Christ is true. So, Father, let us cling to the truth of your word, to your testimony, and to your commandments, seeking in all that we do to follow your will above that of our own. Father, strengthen us for this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we come to the conclusion of our service this morning, church, let's at this time prepare our hearts and our minds for the Lord's Supper. For communion is a time, church, where we as a church body remember the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the insurmountable love that God has for us. Church, it is a time that we testify our faith in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another. And church, it is a time that we celebrate that by faith in Jesus Christ, our salvation is secure, and that Jesus Christ will come again for his bride, the church. We here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church practice what is called open communion. Thus, we invite all believers of the gospel of Jesus Christ to partake. So if you are walking in fellowship with God and with other believers this morning, then you are welcome to join us at the Lord's table. However, we would ask you to abstain this morning. Number one, if you are not a believer, to the non-Christian, again, who is here today, welcome. And we are so glad that you joined us. And I pray that via the preaching of God's Word and in hearing the Gospel message this morning, that today would be the day that you come to faith. And non-Christian, if you have any questions about the Gospel or what it means for Jesus Christ to be the only means of salvation, please see me after the service. I'll be at the door in the back and would love to chat. But if you are not a believer of the Gospel this morning, we would ask you to abstain from the Lord's Supper. We'd also ask you to abstain if you are a believer at this time who is holding fast to known sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 27 and 28 says that as Christians, we are not to take communion in an unworthy manner, but we are to examine ourselves before taking part in the Lord's Supper. So if you are walking in unrepentant sin this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, We'd ask you to confess and to seek forgiveness of your sin before partaking in communion with us. This morning, church, we will again be using the communion cups, which are located in the chairs in front of you. So at this time, I'll ask those who will be joining us at the Lord's table to grab a communion cup and to take a few moments to prepare your hearts and your minds for the Lord's Supper.